Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. Good morning, everyone. How many of you are happy to be in God's house with God's people? And we dare not take it for granted, right? This is a privilege that we get to enjoy and have. We're starting a new study series this morning. We finished up with Philippians last week, and so we are going to begin a new one that I'm, re- I'm calling, um, well, we're going to be gathering up insights from Isaiah. How's that sound? Insights from Isaiah. Now, some of you who are thinking to yourself right now, hey, wait a minute. There are 66 books in that, in the book of Isaiah, and so we'd be doing this till Jesus comes back, right? But as I've said, I'm referring to it as insights from Isaiah, and what that means is that we're not going to start in chapter 1 and do verse by verse for all 66 chapters. What I'm going to do, and as God leads us, is to work through select passages throughout the book of Isaiah, okay? That makes sense? So it'll be select passages through, through the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, just in quick, brief background, was written approximately, they have it in between 700 and 690 B.C. It divides into two sections. First section is chapter 1 through 39. Second section is chapters 40 through 66. The first section warns the Jewish people about the impending invasion that would be coming from the Assyrians, and this is going to be happening. It's part of God's judgment because these folks have just turned their backs on God. They've forgotten about God. They, they don't want anything to do with it. They just want to do their own thing, so to speak. And so that is what is going to be taking place. While the second section encourages the captives returning from the Babylonian captivity. Isaiah actually lived through and experienced the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. He prophesied into the future with regards to chapters 40 through 66, which occurred, I'll say this again in a little bit, about 150 years or so later after his his departure. Now, you will recall, you Bible students, that the nation divided right after the death of Solomon, and it went north and south. Ten tribes went to the north. They were referred to as the northern kingdom known as Israel. So when you see Israel in the Bible, it's referring to, most of the time, the northern kingdom. And then two tribes went south. They're referred to as the southern kingdom, and they are referred to as Judah. The capital of Israel, the northern kingdom, was Samaria. The capital of the southern kingdom, Judah, was Jerusalem. It has been, it is recorded for us in history. It is something that we know for sure. Not only did the Bible prophesy it, it happened, it took place. The folks, you know, God's judgment comes for one particular reason. It isn't because he is a mean God, right? He does that. He puts this out there so that folks would pay attention to it, uh, embrace that, and then check their own hearts and see where they need to make some changes. 
and, and get their lives right with God and begin living for Him again and obeying His commands. And so that's the reason for it. The northern kingdom never got that. <laughs> they never got back around to getting right with God. In fact, when you read their kings, there was like 21, 22 of them in their succession of time. Every single one of them you'll read did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now in the southern kingdom, about half. Half did evil in the sight of the Lord and about another half were kind of like, okay. Um, so in 721 BC, sure enough, God was true to his word. He is a just God. Assyria showed up and defeated and, and took captive the northern kingdom known as Israel, 721 B.C. Assyria was later on defeated by the Egyptians, and then a little while after that, the Egyptians got defeated by the Babylonians. Okay? So it's like one nation just kind of beating up on another. It's, it's interesting, times haven't changed a whole lot, have they? So we still see that going on. And, and so then in about 582 B.C., the southern kingdom, Judah, they too kind of never really got their act together with regards to God, and the Babylonians came and, and took them captive. We, we learned all about that, some of you who remember when we went through the book of Daniel, okay? And so that's what took place there. It's interesting. I want to just as just a kind of an interesting side note. The book of Isaiah has been referred to by some as a, a Bible in miniature, and so what do they mean by that? Isaiah has 66 chapters. How many books are in the Bible? 66. How many chapters are in the Old Testament? 39. I've already mentioned that that first section of Isaiah is chapters 1 through 39. How many books are in the New Testament? 27. How many chapters are in the second section of Isaiah? 27. Interestingly enough, the first section of Isaiah deals with God's judgment. The second section of Isaiah deals with God's redemption and his encouragement with regards to those who would be returning from captivity. And we see that both in the old and in the new as well. In my opinion, no other Old Testament book, with the exception of Psalms, speaks more powerfully, more accurately, more meaningfully to the modern-day church than the book of Isaiah. And I think we will see that this morning. We're going to begin in chapter 5, because chapter 5 of Isaiah presents to us a beautiful picture. Well, I won't say beautiful, <laughs> Because it's not beautiful because they're so steeped in their sin. But a very, um, just a quite, what am I trying to say? Effective picture, I don't know, of their condition. And especially as it compares and parallels with our condition today. Okay? So that's where we will be picking it up in chapter 5. Now, with good reason, God has given us, his holy word. And I just love that phraseology, his holy word. Uh, can I just pause for a second? We, we, we still live in a country that is a free country, don't we? And we can still worship 
as we want to. We are free to carry our Bibles. We are free to speak as we like, worship our true God as we are called to do. In a lot of places, as you know, around the world today, that is not possible. And so what I'm getting at is I think that we can be guilty of taking all of this freedom, this privilege that we have, the fact that we have his holy word. And, and, and some of you have got 10 or 12 copies of this thing in your home. <laughs> My point being, let's be sure we don't take it for granted. I think we can be tempted to do that, and, and, we, and we, we kind of can fall into that, taking that for granted. Is God's word, his holy word, in your heart today, church? I hope that it is, and that you, your response to it, your attitude about it will be as such. This is God's living, holy word. So he's been given to us with good reason. Why? To reveal how we should live, to show us the path that we should take and the things that we should do to live victorious, overcoming lives. But God's holy word also tells us the path not to take, right? The one to ignore and stay away from, that one that is destructive, that will cause problems for us and, and defeating us and taking us down. It gives us that in black and white, <laughs> plain and simple. So when we mess up, God's Word judges us and His Spirit comes and convicts us, bringing then a sense of guilt within our hearts. You've heard me say conviction is our friend. Guilt is connected to that because that's what it's to do, right? Guilt then causes us to correct our behavior before we bring serious consequences onto our lives that don't need to happen. Perhaps one of the most impacting teachings Jesus gave dealt with a vineyard, and it's found in John chapter 15. Jesus told his disciples that he was the vine and that they were the branches. Remember that? And that they must abide in him and cling to him if they were to be fruitful in their lives. So where do you suppose Jesus got that illustration? Could it be that he got it from his father? Because right here in Isaiah chapter 5, we find Isaiah doing the very same thing. Presenting a parable, if you will, about a vineyard. In Isaiah 5, we find the people of Israel and Judah, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, because Isaiah ministered to both. He lived in Jerusalem, but he ministered to both kingdoms. Not all of the prophets did. Isaiah did. So in this fifth chapter, we find Isaiah speaking to both kingdoms, both guilty of some of the most outrageous and evil behavior that one could imagine being done against God. They stood guilty before God and condemned because of their behavior. Sensing the seriousness of the situation, the prophet Isaiah, hoping to stir something within their hearts, hoping they would come back to God's holy word. 
decides to sing a song. <laughs> and that's what, that's what this fifth chapter is. It's actually a song. So you imagine with me, it's like, you know, you're out in public, you're at the supermarket, and some guy shows up and starts singing a song that's got a big-time, heavy-duty message to it. And that's what Isaiah does. He starts to sing a song, hoping to stir, once again, a renewed interest in God's Word. Sang a song or a parable about the vineyard of God. And in this message... In this fifth chapter, in this song that he sings, he brings three major warnings to the northern and southern kingdom. First warning to God's disappointing vineyard, and that's what they are at this point, is, hey, I came looking for fruit, and all I found was rotten fruit. <laughs> but he says that is going to be exposed. Let's look at these first four verses. He says, I will sing for the one I love. A song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah... Judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? <coughs> the beginning of the song declared the one whom Isaiah loved. The one who had planted the vineyard is, of course, God, right? The one Isaiah loves is, is God, the vineyard, obviously God's people. In planting his vineyard, the Lord was very careful. He even went to the extreme, making sure that the vineyard had every opportunity to produce the highest quality fruit. This passage is an overwhelming indictment against the two nations, for in it, the Lord says, I have blessed you. I have worked with you. I have given you so much. You are my vineyard. You're mine. But as I look for fruit in you, I find nothing but wild, bitter grapes, which is how the original Hebrew reads, wild, bitter grapes, meaning that fruit was so bad it was stinking fruit. It's what's being said here. The people had indeed been blessed abundantly by God. But although they enjoyed the gifts of God, they are guilty of forgetting all about God himself. Verse 5 through 7 now, as we continue on in this. Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah and the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. 
He looked for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Having provoked the people to objectively judge for themselves is what he did in verse 3. God then pronounced judgment against the vineyard we see in verses 5 and 6. says that he's removing the protection of the vineyard, its hedge and its wall. The vineyard would be destroyed and trampled upon by others. This is a clear reference to the invasion of foreign nations, which I've already indicated took place in 721 B.C. for the northern kingdom. Since it produced only rotten grapes, there was no need for the Lord to prune or cultivate it anymore. The Lord would stop the rain and the vineyard would stop being productive. It would become unproductive. Consequently, it would become overgrown, as it says, with briars and thorns. I think that this is an extremely scary place to be. Would you agree? Both the northern and southern kingdoms were named so that they would know that they all stood accountable before the Lord. That they all stood accountable before the Lord. The truth is same today, folks. The rotten grapes were identified as the fruit of the corrupt nature, the fruit of a hypocritical life that professed, professed to know the Lord, but that exhibited wickedness instead. Several sins in particular are mentioned. It says, when the Lord looked for the fruit of justice and righteousness among his people, he found only violence and, and lawlessness and oppression and bigotry and idolatry. Instead of bearing good fruit, they were guilty of producing corrupt fruit that stunk all the way to the heavens. Now, it's hard for me to imagine that as a follower of Christ today, one not being able to, to see the parallel that I've already mentioned in the beginning of this this morning, the parallel that exists, I think, quite explicitly between these two kingdoms, and our country today. God has blessed us greatly as a nation. He has blessed us with great freedom and incredible prosperity, and yet we have forgotten Him. We think we are the ones who have accomplished this greatness by our ingenuity, our creativity, our hard work. We congratulate ourselves as if we are the ones who made it happen while all the while forgetting God. In the following verses, in this fifth chapter, we are going to find six woes that are being directed to them. Six woes pronounced upon Israel and Judah, and they make up that second warning. And I think that it would be wise for every single one of us in this room today to have ears to hear what the Spirit might want to be saying to your heart. Amen. To us nationally, to us personally, concerning how we have enjoyed the gifts of God 
but have kind of like forgotten all about the giver of these gifts. Second warning, the sins of the vineyard, God's people are revealed. Picking it up at verse 8, we find the first woe. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left, and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. A 10-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. And what that is telling us is that the measurements here given are producing way, way low than what they should be doing. Okay? The first woe pronounces, that is pronounced deals with corrupt capitalism. We, we're familiar with that term here in America, aren't we? Capitalism. And I want you to know that capitalism can become just as corrupted as any other ism on the planet. Socialism, communism, or any other form of government. Here God is saying people have taken over properties. They've taken homes and fields in order to build their own empires. Obviously, what is being said here is with no concern whatsoever who they are taking them from. The, the needy. They were amassing wealth relentlessly with the spirit of greed and covetousness, glorying in the mere possession of wealth. In other words, they wanted to be recognized as the rich and the famous and the powerful of their communities. That's what mattered to them. That was all that they cared about. Frankly, church, unless a person is going to use their money to benefit society, to help the needy, or to carry the gospel to other nations, there is no need whatsoever for wealth in your life. And because they were motivated only by money... God indicts them and lets them know that they are not going to get away with it indefinitely. No way, no how. And because they were motivated that way, God is letting them know there is a day of reckoning coming. And I'm warning you now so that you can get it straightened out now. The day of reckoning will come. And when it does, it will come, all of that that they've amassed will come crashing down upon them and around them. Verse 11 and 12, we find our second woe. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres and their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine. But they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord. No respect for the work of His hands. In other words, this is hedonism at its worst. <laughs> and if you don't know what hedonism is, it basically is the pursuit of pleasure above all else. Just give me the party life. That is all that matters is where they were. 
God is issuing a severe warning to all drunkards, in which today would include those who are addicted to all kinds of substances, substance abusers, drinking, partying all day, late into the night. So to our country seems to be a relentless pursuit. Wouldn't you agree? In our country today, a relentless pursuit of this hedonism. Nothing can stand between us and our pleasure. Wouldn't that be true? We spend fortunes on alcohol, tobacco, and gambling on bigger houses and faster cars, but don't have enough money, lack the concern to help the poor and needy. In descriptive and explicit language, their doom is foretold with six specific punishments that is being spelled out for them in verses 13 through 17. Just quickly going through those, we see that they again are being told that there's going to be a captivity. Where it says that they're in verse 14 that the jaws of, are going to open up, talking about the grave opening wide and taking in many to, to their deaths, not only the masses, but also the nobles and the leaders will be included, that there's going, going to be a tremendous humbling toward the arrogant and the proud. God's judgment and justice is going to take place, and when it's all said and done, he's letting them know there will be nothing but utter devastation as a result. And that's what we have from verses 13 through 17. And then we find the third woe in verses 18 and 19. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so we may see it. The plan of the Holy One of Israel, let it approach let it come into view so we may know it. The third woe is a strong warning to the deceivers and to the mockers, because that's what we have taking place in verses 18 and 19. It, if you don't know that, it would sound like, oh, look, they're, they're looking to God, praying to God in a good kind of way. No, they are mocking God is what they are doing. Most of the people were so steeped in sinful, loose living, they were utterly deceived. Wherever they went or traveled, they hauled their sins along with them, is what's being told here. Notice the colorful descriptive term. It says they used cart ropes, heavy cart ropes that would pull a cart loaded with stuff is what they're using is they, no matter where they go, no matter what they do, they're hauling their sin with them meaning they're impacting and influencing others in this kind of deception and mockery of God. A spirit of deception gripped the people's hearts. As a result, they mocked God, in particular the issue of His judgment is what is being said here. They refused to accept the fact that a day of reckoning was coming. How applicable to so many who deny the truth of God's judgment today. But as it was for Israel and Judah, so it will be for us. The hand of God's judgment will fall upon all deceivers, all mockers of God. People plunge into sin and, and I think often can 
can mistake the mercy and the patience and the long-suffering of God for apathy or impotence or even in their deception, his approval. That's, pretty, that's being pretty deceived, isn't it? Yes, our Father is incredibly long-suffering. And the wheels of his judgment turn quite slowly. He waits for us to repent. He waits for us to come to our senses, but eventually we will find ourselves ground up in the inevitable wheels of judgment if we do not turn back to him in repentance. Verse 20, we find our fourth woe. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The fourth woe is a strong warning to those with perverted values who call evil good and good evil. This is what's known as relativism today. That's the term. Relativism is that which is, lacks absolutes. And so if we are going to set aside and disregard God's holy word, what you're going to be left with is relativism. Because no longer will there be something that is absolute, like the absolute truth of God's word. You can't really say what's right or wrong. Have you noticed that today? <laughs> for anyone? Anymore? What's right for you may not be right for me. The only absolute is that there are no absolutes. We've heard that, correct? Just do whatever it is you want to do. It's all good. The darkness of sin took the place of the light of God's righteousness. And they claimed their right to enjoy the pleasures of life however they wished. In their minds, no person, not even God, had the right to put any kind of restraint upon how they lived their lives. Whatever person desired to do, they believed they had the freedom to do it no matter what it was. They could worship however, whatever they wanted and covet whatever they wanted and no one had the right to rebuke or restrain them. As a result, there was a complete breakdown of morality and justice within their society. People's values became totally twisted and polluted. Hopefully your thinking right now sounds familiar. <laughs> sounds like our day. Verse 21, we find the fifth woe. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. The fifth woe you could refer to as being intellectualism. These folks were too smart to believe. <laughs> Think about that. Too smart to believe. Too prideful and arrogant to be humble. Believing their thinking was sufficient enough. Oh, but the Bible tells us what? In Psalm 14, verse 1, it is the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. 
Instead of accepting God's word, they use their own wisdom and opinions to formulate their personal religion. So their God becomes only a creation of their own imaginations and ideas. They reject the fact that the Lord has revealed himself in so many ways, right? And the truth about how to live a fruitful life, a victorious life in him. Can there be anything more absurd, church? We the puny, thinking that we are wiser, stronger, and better than God Almighty. Sixth woe, verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. Alcoholism is the sixth woe. Because they have given themselves over to intoxication, people no longer are thinking clearly. Multiple millions of people in our country today, you know this, are addicted to alcohol or some other substance. Woe be to a society who has come under this bondage, is what God is saying. For the second time, we find Isaiah mentions that those who are guilty of excessive drinking, apparently this was a, being a reference here in these verses to the leaders and to the judges of the nation. Those who were supposed to be godly. Despite their drunkenness, unjust, and crooked behavior, they were looked upon as heroes in their sins. When it came to drinking and greedy behavior, they could hold their own against anyone, is what's being suggested here. They could drink as much as the next person. They could deal just as dishonestly as the next leader. But they were overlooking one very important fact, the judgment of God. Third warning is, is concerning the coming judgment, and we find that be picking up at verse 24 on through the end of the chapter. It says, therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw and as dry grass sinks down into the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuge in the streets. Yet for all of this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Because of their rotten, bad fruit, their terrible sins against God, their rejecting of Him, their forgetting all about Him, the Israelites were to face the reproach and discipline of God. Impending judgment lay just over the horizon. The reason for God's judgment is unmistakable. The people had rejected God's law, despised His word, the word of the Holy One of Israel. 
They had been given God's word as a guide for their lives. And they were to share God's word to the world. They had failed miserably at both. They wanted nothing to do with the commandments of God and refused to heed them. Instead, they chose to live however they wanted to, however they wished, doing their own thing when and how they ever wanted to do that own thing. Look at verse 26 through the end of the chapter now with me. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come, swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist. Not a sandal strap is broken. An army is being described here, an invading army, and they're geared up to do damage. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows are strung. Their horses' hooves seem like flint. Their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Their roar is like that of the lion, the roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day, they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, there is only darkness and distress. Even the sun will be darkened by the clouds. Because God will not be mocked, church, and because of his allowance, the Assyrian army would march down on Israel in a flawless military maneuver, prepared to do some serious damage, and it did, as we said, in 721 B.C. And again, as I said earlier, roughly 150 years later, the same thing occurred to Judah, the southern kingdom, only not the Assyrians at that point, but the Babylonians. You see, the problem was neither kingdom, neither Israel nor Judah, northern or southern, took God seriously. Through all of this, God is saying, you brought judgment and destruction upon yourself. And in verse 25, he lets us know something very interesting, something we do, want, do not want to miss. His hand is still upraised, it says. Did you see that? Oh, but church, look at that hand. Yes, he is a just God, and yes, consequences for our disobedience will happen, but also know that ultimately that hand is not stretched out to come down on us. Ultimately, the hand is stretched so that we can see the scars, the nail prints in his hand, and know that they were pierced by spikes for us. Were they not? Look at that hand. It's still outstretched. Not to come down, but to reach out and to save us. To grab hold of our attention so that we cease living for ourselves and start living for him. 
God's hand is stretched out, folks. The mistakes that we have made personally, the mistakes that have been made by the church generally, mistakes that have been made by our community, by our country, have been forgiven and covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. If we'll simply respond and say, thank you, Lord, for reaching out, for stretching out your hand on the cross, for absorbing my sins. I repent. I change direction. I'm turning away from my old path, my old way of doing things, my old way of thinking and living. And I'm choosing your path, God. I'm choosing your holy word. To not, I'm, I'm choosing to get to a place where I'm not just saying, yeah, I believe in God. And yes, I believe the Bible, but living it. I mean, literally living it. What an idea, huh? <laughs> that we no longer say, yes, I believe, but we actually live a life that produces a life that says, yeah, there is someone who truly does believe. Look at their lives. We repent, we change direction, and we get onto his path, doing life his way as outlined for us in his holy word. Time to stop ignoring this, church. And not only are we to know it, but we are to live it. And don't you dare sit there and say, quit telling me what to do. I'm not. God's word is. So don't cop an attitude on me or on God. Because I think, frankly, I'm going to be real honest here. I think God, frankly, is sick and tired of it. And we've come to a place where we've got to stop pointing, stop pointing our fingers at that group or that person and accusing them of being the problem in our country. The problem is right here. Repent, repentance begins right here. Nations don't repent. People repent. So therefore, I think it's time for us to accept our part in the corrupt state of our society. It's time for us to change our activities. It's time for us to pray on behalf of our country. It's time for us to take God seriously. Agreed? Yes. So let's not just agree with our mouths. Let's agree with our lives yes. from this point on. Amen. Amen. Father, we come before you. And I just want on the front end of this study in Isaiah say thank you for the book of Isaiah. It's going to have things for us, insights and messages and passages that there will be times that we may not want to hear. But God, may we have ears to hear. I pray that we would humble ourselves that we would recognize when pride is wanting to lift its ugly head and we not allow it, but we would humble ourselves and say to you, God, speak, 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 speak. Show me where I need to change. Show me where I'm coming up short. Show me, God, 
how I could get right with you and reflect you and display you in a greater way. God, bring to my heart a greater appreciation and a love and a hunger and a desire for your holy word. A greater love and desire for you, Lord, and a lesser and lesser and lesser desire for this world. This is our prayer. May it be so. For I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up.